The birthplace of the Bohemian Revolution from Cowork 591 Studios. This is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network, and we're on a mission from God. All right. With producer Blake Tempest, I'm Jim Gillespie with co-host Dale Reber, and this is the Jessup News for January 15th, 2024. Dale, do you know what movie uh, that line comes from? We're on a mission from uh, God. Sure. Uh, Blues Brothers. There you go. Yeah. Well done. That's that's very good. I love that. That's a good movie. I love the, the music in that. Yeah. Usually musical movies I don't care for much, but that one I really did. You know, every song was yeah. really good. I wouldn't, I'm going to talk about that movie Are you a really? little bit. All yes, right. I am. Okay. Um, tonight we talk about uh, our winners and losers as always. We talk about uh, tonight's Republican caucus, also the Democrats are caucusing, but... Uh, that's the, Not much uh, drama there. So. No, that's a lower card. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we talk about... Uh, that's a boxing reference, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it go. is. Very well, good. I'm, I'm sharp today. We, we talk about a murder plot. Um, we look at how we, how we can hurt people by what we say. Yeah. And we don't realize it. Um, we look at the best soundtrack ever done in the movies. Um, talk, talk about the Blues Brothers a little bit. We ask you to support the arts wherever you are. We thank uh, our supporters, Donnie Jacobson and, and many others. Dale has something for you. We look at coming events in the Steve Brown Arts Center. We give you the top stories, and we discuss service and art. If you'd like to donate to the Steve Brown Arts Center or have an idea for an event, Event, go to the Steve Brown Arts Center.org and follow the link or call 319-290-0241 and leave a message. As always, the Steve Brown Arts Center is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that has a vision for artists, young and old alike, to have the opportunity to better themselves while helping to build the skills of those around them. It will be offering community programming starting in Jessup, Iowa, before expanding to neighboring communities. Programming will include a community speaker series that will showcase existing creatives who reside within the community, as well as a pop-up series that will spotlight and partner with local businesses to provide opportunities for community engagement. Uh, we're excited tonight to talk about some upcoming events, including the Steve Brown Arts Center's first event in Fairbank coming up at the end of the month. Dale, let's start. Let's start with the uh, the caucuses or the caucus tonight. Or tonight, it, it sure looks like Trump is going to run away with it. Yeah, but I know I've been having this feeling all along that when it gets right down to it, that that uh, I think Nikki Haley is going to do really really well. I well, just have this feeling for her, so. Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see the numbers because it's not like in what New Hampshire. She's within ten points or less, and South Carolina's her state. You know, coming up, so if she can do halfway decent in Iowa. She might have a, a nice leg up. And uh, people more and more, I think, are, are talking about all the drama that comes with Trump and how uh, their chances of winning really go down with him because of all the other things that are going on in his life. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Dale, you talk about that, and you go back to to the first time he was elected. He, you know, he said some nasty things. You know, that, that night they had him taped on that bus, mm-hmm. yeah. talking about grabbing people and yeah. things like that. You know, that didn't hurt him. You know, he, he that for the first debate between him and Hillary Clinton, 
I never saw anything like that. It didn't hurt him. Yeah. I mean, he, well, he lost the pop. He's never won the popular vote. You know, it's where he gets the votes that are, are making the difference. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people voting this time that, uh, because I think they will see the menace this man has uh, put our country uh, into. And so, so, yeah, all we're doing is guessing here. But, uh, you know, he lost by 8 million votes in 2020. So I, I just don't see he might you know he might poll really big, but he's polling just with Republicans, and there's a lot more Democrats and Independents than there are Republicans. And so uh, I'm hoping that that wise people will get in that voting booth and do what's the best for the country. You know, it is uh, the caucus in Iowa. So let's talk about Iowa tonight. Tonight a little bit, Dale. Um, if you were to predict what percentage of the vote. Is Trump going to get in Iowa tonight? Uh, well, with Christie dropping out like he did, I'll say he gets 45%. Okay. That's, I think, kind of consistent with what he's been polling. But. It is a good number. So so 50, say that again, 50. I say 45% for Trump and then 55% then to be divided. It's just really Haley and DeSantis. And if Haley can get a, the lion's share of that vote, well, then I think she'll have a real good chance going into New Hampshire and South Carolina after that. But I think just with Iowa's past political history, he's probably going to get 45% of the Republican vote. The Republican candidates spent a lot of time out in western Iowa, mm -hmm. in, yeah. in the rural area. Yeah. You know, they don't. They don't spend time in Waterloo or Cedar Rapids. Yeah. Very rare. I mean, they do come to Cedar Rapids, but, you know, they don't spend time in Davenport or... No, no, Davenport, Iowa City, Des Moines, the rest of the state is more Republican, it seems, for the most part. Uh, it probably oversimplifies it. But, yeah, out west, we have the, the Christians, the uber-conservatives. Uh, that's where their votes are at. Well, they talked about when Gary Hart ran... Gary Hart said you could win Iowa with six counties. Yeah. yeah. And, you know. Um, I'm sure that's still true. You look at uh, Polk County and Dallas County right in the middle there, and then Johnson County around Iowa City and Scott County around Davenport, and then I don't know how Sioux City over west, how do they go? Sioux City Council Bluffs, um, that area. But I know. Uh, Lynn County. Lynn County, yes, probably. Yeah. And Blackhawk County. Yeah. But, so, all, you know, the northwest corner is very conservative and, and all that, all those uh, small populated counties, you know, a lot of bare land, very few cities. When, so, I, when I drive the, you know, for my jo job, I drive a lot and I drive the countryside. The, the, uh, the Trump signs speckle the, the countryside. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. Well, I have to tell you, though, in, in uh, <clears throat> 2020, I was fishing in Minnesota in September. And so driving, this is northern Minnesota and driving back on Interstate 35, almost, well, to the Hampton turnoff in Iowa, uh, you saw tons and tons and tons of Trump signs and nothing for Biden. And I thought, you know, the guy is, he's really in trouble, but he ended up winning the election. So I think uh, it's nice, I guess, to have all those yard signs out, but uh, they don't always transfer into votes. I don't think, and so because I was really worried, because all I saw was Trump signs, but he ended up losing 
of course. Well, they won Iowa, though, I yeah, guess so. Yeah. So uh, I will say, I'll go higher. I'll say Trump is going to gonna score 60%. Yeah, I'm going to write this down That's now. fine. Okay. That's fine. Um, Trump's going to score 60% in Iowa. Okay. Um, back, in, back in 20, I... Was it 20? Yeah, in 20, I, I, I worked on the Yang campaign. Worked hard. Spent a lot, of, a lot of time at it, and and we ended up with one percent. Yeah. I mean, it just, yeah. just just wrecked Yang. Yeah. I, I can remember a week before the uh, what the primaries, um, Yang broke down crying. I think it was in Dubuque. I wondered what that was about. I thought, oh, he's just tired. Mm -hmm. But he was tireless. Yeah. Um, the man was tireless, and. A week later, we got one percent. I realized what he was crying about. He knew it, he knew what was yeah. going to happen. Oh, it's a tough business. Yeah, and you got to have a real thin skin, or real thin, real thick skin. Because uh, uh, even the name calling within your own party gets pretty vicious. Yeah, and uh, was she tricky, Nikki? They call her now. And uh, but nobody makes fun of Trump. No, no, they don't. Yeah, they, and uh, they, um, so who's number two then? Who, who, who? I think Haley's going to be number two. You say yeah. Nikki Haley with how, what percent of the vote? Depends if I use your number or my number, but I say I bet she gets thirty percent at least. Wow! Wow! I think she'll get thirty percent. So I've got Nikki Haley getting about fifteen mm, percent okay. in Iowa. Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Okay. You know, maybe maybe just a <clears throat> little bit more. Fifteen point three, yeah. something like that. But then I'll go first on uh, number three. Um, real close behind Nikki is DeSantis. He's going to go at about fourteen point eight. He's going to be right there. <laughs> I mean, like fifteen point two, fourteen point eight. So DeSantis, you're saying. Uh, 14.8. 14.8. Nikki's okay. 15.2. There's 30, so that's 60, 90. Well, and there's other, other, you know, little things. There's spoiled ballots, and there's a couple other candidates that yeah. might get one or two. So, okay. Oh, man. So what's that leave me? Well, I'll say he gets uh, 20%. I know it doesn't add up, but... Uh, each of these is an individual assignment right, for me. So right. I'll say DeSantis gets twenty. I think Nikki Haley will beat him. Okay, and then and then fourth, I've got Ramzawami going uh, with probably about oh oh I'm going to say five point four percent. That's going to knock him out. He won't go. Yeah. He won't go to to New Hampshire. So that's what, what's decide. his What's his first name? It's a little easier to spell. Oh, is it Anver <laughs> Anvery? An <laughs> I don't know. What's his last name? Swami. Ra Ra Ramas R A M A S Wami, W A M Y Ramas Wami. Okay, you're going to give him what five? Five point four percent. Five point four percent. And then the rest are going to divide. Divide the rest of the votes. And I'll, I'm going to say he's going to get less than 5%. All right. Okay. There we go. All right. So so then that's tonight. If you're a Republican, go to the caucus. Um, be, be involved in that. I, it, uh, I'm ashamed to tell you this, Dale. Um, the 20, 20 election was the first time I ever was involved in the 
in uh, the primaries for oh. the Democratic, you know, okay, the coach, caucuses, you mean? Or the caucuses, yeah. 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 <clears throat> for the first time, and, you know, I coached basketball for, mm -hmm. for 40 years, and yeah. I always had practice or a game. Mm -hmm. I like going to the caucuses. I went, uh, now what year would that have been? When they first had the caucuses, and there was a race in the Republican side and nothing on the Democratic side. So I went to the Republican caucus mm -hmm. and, uh, and listened. And I cannot remember who was, who was running then. But I've gone to the, all the Democrat caucuses ever since. And uh, I found that they were much more in line with the way I thought about things. And it's always been interesting. Uh, and I sat, you usually divide up, but you know, you, all the Clinton people over here and all the ball, you know, yeah. divide up. And... Uh, I can remember sitting at a table where there were just three of us. You know, we <laughs> we had a candidate only had only three votes for him, and I can remember uh, when Obama ran and Hillary was also running at that time, and Obama just was overwhelmingly got overwhelming support there. And I, holy cow! I said, this guy is going to take it. You know, I mean, he, yeah. I just he just kind of came out of nowhere as far as I was concerned, and uh, it was really very interesting to see the people show up in the lunchroom there. Mm -hmm. And they were all a huge crowd over in the one corner. They are all Obama people. I said, oh, oh, man. So I don't know who, what politician is the next Obama in our country. You know, he was young and upcoming. Mm -hmm. You know, the Marjorie Taylor tries to be that one. She's young. Yeah. But, you know, then there's three or four young Democratic women mm -hmm. that try to be that. Mm -hmm. But, then, you know, they're all likable. Yeah, he all, was likable. He was. Yes, yeah. he was just. Uh, you know, you talk about his, his funny little ears and this and that. I mean, he was and singing you know, like Bill Clinton won because he played his saxophone on a, on the Tonight Show or something. You know, Obama sang a couple songs for people at different times, and so uh, he just sometimes some people have it. You know, yep. you talk to him, you mean I really like that guy, and so. Oh, uh, <clears throat> uh, and that's why you know. That worked. It, who, do you, who is it? Who, who is the yeah. next Democrat or Republican? Yeah, I don't know. Anyhow, let's let's move on. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network, and and Dale, let's talk about winners and losers while we're at it right now. All right, uh, Governor Reynolds in her her speech to the legislature uh, is proposing raising teacher pay from thirty three thousand five hundred to start to fifty thousand dollars. And uh, so I thought, well, that's a real winning kind of thing, not only just for teachers, but for the state as well, because if you pay people, you get better people in there. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so she wants to raise the beginning teacher cost or pay to $50,000, which would cost the state uh, $47 million out of their huge surplus that they have. And then she wants the minimum pay for 12-year veterans to be 62000 Right. And so um, that would cost uh, $26 million to bring them up to uh, to that pay. And I think there's a lot of Jessup teachers that make more than 62000 already because they have, you know, a fairly veteran staff. Right. And uh, so, do you remember how, well, your first contract, just teaching, how, how much was it worth? Well, I, w I was, I was six-tenths and so it was around, and plus I was coaching three sports, so mm -hmm. it was six tenths and three sports was around fourteen thousand dollars. What year was that? That would have been eighty four. <clears throat> okay, so well, I signed my first contract in uh, 
73, it was $7,500. That was the highest base in the state for, new, for beginning teachers. So I can remember going to Hummy's house, Paul Hummus, and he a longtime English teacher in Jessup, and he, he had his first contract um, up in, on the in wall, a frame yeah. on the wall. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I don't remember seeing that. Yeah, and, and he, his first contract was 4000 Seven hundred and fifty-one dollars. Yeah, yeah. I can remember how many telling me I made that much painting that year. <laughs> yeah, just in the summertime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Because I made seven thousand five hundred dollars teaching, and then in the month of from fifth of June or so until the third of July, I coached. Well, I ran the Lily program and ran. I got a thousand dollars for that. Right. For just four weeks or so. Yeah. So uh, they, th you know, if I. Extrapolate that out. That's twelve thousand dollars running the little league program. It was a year on job instead of teaching. So yeah, right. no money was tough to come by teaching in those days. But uh, you could you could you could live on that. Yeah. If you and I was single, and so it was uh, no problem, I guess. But uh, so Governor Reynolds is your winner. Well, that that's got to well, be not first. Governor Reynolds. It's just the teacher pay. Ah, yeah, there yeah. you go. All Governor right. Reynolds will never be my winner at anything. I'm just I'm just you know you look at that. Okay. What's she really after here? <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, well, my winner is the Allerton Brewery in Independence, oh, Iowa. Oh, sure. You've probably been drinking there uh, all week, uh, and that's the, why uh, I'm, I'm, you uh, are the way you are. Okay. I am not, uh, although I, I don't mind a beer now and then. I'm not a bit big Not an everyday beer drinker, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's <clears> just <throat> too much hops and that stuff in, I'm not saying Allerton's beer, but... You know, I, I'm not a darker beer drinker, mm -hmm. and that's what most of those breweries drink or yeah. make. Yeah. I had a friend who went to one of these microbreweries. They have all these different kinds of beer that they make, and they asked what he liked. Well, give me something as close as you got to a Bud Light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what he wanted. That's what he liked. And so uh, it didn't do him any good to have 500 different kinds of beer there. So. Uh -huh. But Allerton Brewery is uh, supporting supporting the Steve Brown Arts Center this uh, coming this coming Friday as we we are uh, we are showing the the photography of Dave Harms at Allerton Brewery on the nineteenth from six o'clock until eight o'clock, and hopefully a number of you stop in. Although it's it's basketball game night for. A number of you, so yeah. I, I understand. But do you have an address for that for people? Uh, or? Well, that's, that's um, right by the bridge in downtown Independence. Okay, close enough. So yeah, if they can't find the bridge, we don't want them there anyway. So. <laughs> so. All right, so that that's my uh, winner. Okay. Um, the the loser <clears throat> is the defense department for many reasons right now. Um, Lloyd Austin. Ended up going to the hospital, and I'm not t attacking Lloyd Austin. He had he had a um, operation for I believe it was pancreatic cancer, and uh, I'm sure he didn't want people to know, you know. And there's there's a fine argument, you know. Does a government employee like that? Oh, you talking about the Secretary of Defense? You know, the yeah. Secretary yeah, of prostate Defense. Prostate cancer. Prostate. Yeah. Prostate. Thank yeah. you. Thank mm -hmm. you. You know, d does a government employee like that have to tell his employers? Yeah. You know, he did it during Christmas break. Um, the president not, didn't know he went in. Um, a lot of people didn't know he went in. Yeah. 
and uh, then he ended up getting infection from the surgery. It was pretty. It was pretty touch and go for a while. Yeah. Oh, the, there's the privacy laws that are out there. Now, does that govern? Does the, the Secretary of Defense have the right to privacy? Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think. There's a black guy on the Today Show, uh, and I can't remember his name right now. But he, they were talking about this this morning, and he was saying. Uh, because the Secretary of Defense was a black man, that in the black community, that's a touchy subject because of the ED problems that come sometimes and incontinence and this sort of thing. It's not the kind of thing that many black people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he brought that into the mix as far as whether for, uh, in the conversation as far as whether or not the man should have been more. Uh, but I think if you're the Secretary of Defense, I think you probably should have told the president that I'm going to be gone for a while and I'm having this surgery. And uh, because that kind of surgery, if something goes wrong, they need to have somebody in place to. And so uh, so I think he probably should have told the president. I don't know. I don't think he needed to have a news conference or anything before or after, you know, because it's really it's nobody's business except maybe it's the president's business. Yeah. And so I would I would I would go that far. That's why he's my. That's what the Defense Department is my loser for yeah. mm-hmm. for the week. So yeah. who's, your, who's your loser? Well, my, every now and then, uh, some uh, animal rights people would uh, use fake identification on applications, lie in their applications. They get in these hog confinement places or other animal places where they raise a lot of livestock, and they would film treatment of the animals or mistreatment of the animals, and then they, of course they would put it out on the internet and this sort of thing. And uh, so they, they've done this in Iowa. And to me, you know, if someone t- came into my operation and said, you know, these are terrible things that you're doing, hopefully try to fix those things and not do those kind of things anymore. But what the uh, Republicans did is they passed laws saying you can't lie on your application to get into a farm and you can't run a camera while you're on somebody's farm that's against the law well the uh, uh, laws that they went went through the court system and now a panel of judges has upheld these they're called ag gag laws saying that no you cannot lie on your application to, to trespass and you cannot film uh, abuses that are going on so uh, to me uh, what that says is instead of fixing the problem, we're going to make sure that the problem can't be reported. And I, I just, I don't go along with that. So the ag-gag laws, and those are passed by the Republicans and defended by the Republicans. And so that's, those are my losers. I think uh, what they're doing uh, in this day and age with, uh, you know, we don't have to treat animals like that with some of these abuses that are coming up. And, uh, and so anyway, they were my losers. Here, so. Here's a number for you, Dale. In the last year, in the Amish community out here, um, and I don't know the man's name. I wish I, I, I should have done research on it. A man has went to 20 different families and built a a calf, a, be, a beef calf um, confinement building for 200 head of cattle on 20 different Amish farms. Okay. You think of that? That's uh, you know twenty. That's four thousand. That's four thousand head of cattle okay. that are being confined. You know, it is. We we used to talk about this. We used to do a 
we used to do an assignment in class when we talked about the uh, the philosophes from the French Revolution. What is what is your property rights? What's mm. what's the what are your rights? You know, your property. You can do what you want with mm-hmm. that property, yeah. including put two hundred calves in a, in, in a confinement built. So, were they making veal? Is that what they're doing, or just raising them to I, be? I think they're just raising them yeah. to move them on. Is what they're doing, and they're confined basically their whole life. Then, well, at least up to that point, up yeah. until they move them yeah. on. Um, but that that. That that that's a lot of building out in the Amish community. Twenty yeah. buildings on twenty different farms. Yeah. This is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network. And I want I want to tell you tonight about a murder plot. Okay. Um there was a lady named Abby. And Abby and her husband didn't get along. And Abby found out that her husband was going to try and kill her. Her husband had fallen in love with a younger woman, that she was going to do something to her husband before her husband killed her. Mm -hmm. So one night, the police found her car in a quarry with her coat in it and her purse in it, this is it underwater, like in a quarry? Well, okay. it, it took place in England. Okay. So it was in a shale quarry, so it could have been in water, okay. but they found it, found a car wrecked. This took place about 1930. Okay. So the police found a car wrecked, and they looked all around the, the quarry, couldn't find her. And so they... They looked, they looked at how the car had gotten in the quarry and they realized it had been pushed into the quarry. And there was, they went to the husband thinking the husband had done it. Well, her, the husband was with his girlfriend at a engagement party. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and they thought, well, maybe the girlfriend and the husband did it together. Mm-hmm. Well, in the meantime, Abby was spotted on the West Coast, and she told the police why she did it. Well, Abby felt no guilt about it, but Abby should have been a lot smarter because, Dale, do you know who Abby was? Abby was Agatha Christie. Oh. <laughs> The woman that had killed multiple people in multiple books mm-hmm. tried to have herself killed. Oh, this was after she'd written the books that which oh, okay. Written a number of books. Yeah. 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 She So is that a true story? That's I a true that's a okay. true story. I did not realize that. Yeah, yep. So that's a, that's the story of Agatha Christie trying to kill her or trying to frame her husband yeah. for for so murder. So were there do you like after this you know what happened after? Or? Well, you know, there was murder was never, you know, there was nothing. You know, yeah. she was well to do. Mm-hmm. He was well to do. Yeah. You know, I'm sure he he went off with his girlfriend, and she went on and okay. Wrote so there's more. no police charges no. for what she had tried to do, or no, or littering her, or so. 
Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, Ag- I, Agatha I never Christie. Heard that, so. What What's your favorite Agatha Christie uh, book? Oh man, uh, she did Murder on the Orient Express. That's what I've seen as a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, what, Ten Little Indians? Ten is Little good. Indians. And I think is I've seen those both as plays rather than read the book. Yep. I, don't, I don't know that I've ever read anything that she wrote, but uh, I have seen plays made from her stories. When I was in high school, I read a lot of Agatha Christie. Okay. Oh, um, I enjoyed that. Okay. But anyhow, that that is uh, that story of the murder plot. Okay. Well. This is the Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network. Dale, what do you have for us tonight? Oh, I was going to, for those of you who don't get a chance to read the paper, there was a neat article today that kind of goes with things we've talked about. And it's about the global heat record that was shattered in 2023. And these uh, different organizations that keep track of this sort of thing are uh, releasing their end-of-the-year reports. And uh, last year was 1.48 degrees Celsius pre-industrial times, so that would be like before 1850, before they started the Industrial Revolution, burning all the coal in, in these factories and everything, and burning oil. Uh, so it was the highest since before 1850. And uh, so January 24, right now, is on track to be so warm that for the first time in a 12-month period will exceed the 1.5 degree threshold. And that's the threshold. Scientists have repeatedly said the Earth would need to average 1.5 degrees of warming over two or three decades to be a technical branch of the threshold. And what that means is uh, keeps 1.5 degrees higher over several years, that's going to be catastrophic for the Earth and so for the people that live on it. So the guy said this goal is not going to affect us, but our children and grandchildren will very much be affected. And he says, the record heat this past year made life miserable and sometimes deadly in Europe, North America, China, and many other places last year. Scientists say a warming climate is also to blame for more extreme weather events, like the lengthy drought that devastated the Horn of Africa, the torrential downpours that wiped out dams and killed thousands in Libya, and the uh, Canada wildfires that fouled the air from North America to Europe. And it was uh, very evident down here. The World Weather Attribution Team only looks at events that affect at least one million people or kill more than 100 people. But uh, the lady in charge said her team was overwhelmed with more than 160 of these in 2023 and could only conduct 14 studies, many of them on killer heat waves. Basically, every heat wave that is occurring today has been made more likely and is hotter because of human-induced climate change. Uh, Antarctic sea ice hit record low levels in 2023 and broke eight monthly records for low sea ice. All of this is important, but it was record-breaking. The heat was record-breaking for seven months. We had the warmest June, July, August, September, October, November, and December. It wasn't just a season or a month that was exceptional. It was exceptional for over half the year where the temperature is raising. Several factors made 2023 the warmest year on record, but by far the biggest factor was the ever-increasing quantity of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that trap heat. These gases come from burning coal, oil, and natural gas. Now, I've heard people say this like other factors. It's El Nino which is a temporary warming of the central Pacific that alters weather worldwide and other natural oscillations in the Arctic, Southern, and Indian Oceans. Increased solar activity, more activity on the sun, and the 
2022 eruption of an undersea volcano that sent water vapor into the atmosphere. But uh, this person, uh, Meinschausen, a University of Melbourne climate scientist, said about 1.3 degrees Celsius of the warming comes from greenhouse gases and only one-tenth degrees Celsius from El Nino and all the rest of these smaller causes. So it's still the greenhouse gases from burning uh, coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, actual observations temperature only date back less than two centuries. Evidence from tree rings and ice cores suggests that this is the warmest the Earth has been in more than 100,000 years. So it basically means that the cities, roads, monuments, farms, all human activities have never had to cope with the climate this warm. There are simply no cities, no books, agriculture, or domesticated animals on the planet the last time the temperature was this high. For the first time, Copernicus recorded a day where the world averaged at least two degrees Celsius more than pre-industrial times. So every day was two degrees Celsius higher than before 1850, this last year. It happened twice and narrowly missed a third day around Christmas. For the first time, every day of the year was at least one degree Celsius warmer than pre-industrial times. And for nearly half the year, 173 days, the world was 1.5 degrees warmer than in the mid-1800s. But the man concludes saying it's going to get hotter. Following the current trajectory, in a few years' time, the record-breaking year of 2023 will probably be remembered as a cold year. And so... This is science, and a lot of people debunk science. That seems to be the popular trend among politicians who are trying to uh, appease people. But uh, I think we talk about Nikki Haley, and one of the things she talked about is more drilling, more fracking, this sort of thing. And that bothers me because uh, I think we cannot keep doing the same things we're doing if we want a planet uh, that's going to be comfortable to live in or even livable for our, our grandchildren. So. The scientists are starting to come in with their reports, different organizations to follow this sort of thing. And uh, the preliminary ones say it's all going to show that 2023 was one of the hottest years on record. It shattered all the records and that it's going to uh, only get worse if we don't change our ways. So that's my little spiel for today. I, you know, I think it's too late to change, Dale. Well, you know, uh, on my down days, I think that too. To get started would help, you know, but uh, I just, uh, I was telling you, I was reading this 1981, there's a Reader's Diet, had an article about solar energy and how someday maybe those batteries would be better than they were in 1981 where, and they are so much better. And so there's a lot of things that can be done with solar and wind. Uh, they've done studies with people talk about the uh, windmills killing birds, but the, if They've got a study now, if you paint one of those blades black, every other blade black, the birds stay away for some reason. And there's a couple other things they can do. So they're working on these problems, but I think people have to really embrace it and people have to tell their politicians that we know you get a lot of money from the oil industry and this sort of thing, but you're gonna have to uh, turn your back on that and put the people and the planet first and uh, start working on uh, making us uh, not so dependent upon uh, and uh, natural gas. Mm -hmm. But I'm like you. I, I don't think they have the courage to do it. The, the, last, the last thing the people have in our Congress is courage, in my opinion. So, uh, Good one, Dale. Thank you. Thank Did you ever read uh, Profiles in Courage by John Kennedy? 
If I did, it was a okay, long yeah. time ago. Well, he won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, right. for it back before he became president. But uh, it's a book about people who put their own personal interests or their own careers aside to do what was right for the greater good for the country. And uh, I think people should read that because uh, some of them really suffered for it. But in the long run, it turned out to be a wonderful thing for the planet. So or for the for the country at that time and we need people who will do the same thing now so yeah yeah that's very good um this is steve brown art center podcast network dale i want to talk a little bit about how we question people in our society okay it's not uh, it, it it is not i don't think people realize the harm we do by the way we question people you know, it is, there's a fine line between being interested and questioning people. And I, I've been, you know, you go back to it, to when I taught, I was as guilty of it as anybody. Um, but as I think about it now, some of these are real harmful. Mm-hmm. Dale, you, you taught elementary for years. And here's a question, you know, that I'm sure um, young people were asked either by their parents or grandparents, aunts and uncles, do you have a boyfriend or do you have a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. We, we ask little kids that. <laughs> we ask little kids yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about pressure. Yeah. yeah. You know, it is, you know, we, we as a society try to, try to make people as we are. We try, and I understand there's mores and there's folk ways, you know, it, but we, we, we try to force people to get married in our society. You know, and it starts in elementary school with little kids. Yeah. You know, who's your boyfriend? Who's your girlfriend? Yeah. Well, who cares with a five-year-old child or yeah. a six-year-old child? They, they got enough other things. They don't need to be worrying about a boyfriend yeah. or a girlfriend. Yeah. But we, we do that, and, and including myself. You know, mm-hmm. oh sure, you, you think you'll get a funny answer? Yeah. Right? It's, it's just a, yeah. You and know, people have been doing that for centuries. Oh, they have. Yeah. You know, another one. Another one. Um, you know, are you on a diet? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, I, I ran into a friend of mine in Walmart the other day. I knew him, but I didn't know him yeah. because he was down. He was down sixty pounds. Yeah. And I looked at him, and I thought, well, gosh, he's the father of, a, of another friend of mine. He can't be my friend. Mm-hmm. You know, thank goodness I didn't say, well, are you on a diet? Um, because that friend has cancer. Yeah. You know, he, he's, he's lost 60 pounds the last five months mm-hmm. from, because of the cancer and yeah. the radiation and, and the like. Will I interrupt your flow if I t- throw in something here? No, uh, go ahead. Uh, one of the first teacher contracts we had with the uh, with the school district, there was a clause in there that if uh, a teacher became pregnant, she was supposed to notify. And I think their reasoning was we need to look ahead and get a sub or this or that. And so that was in the contract. The president of the Teachers Association, and Mr. Jesse was the high school principal, and he comes up to me in the hallway and he says, uh, says in the contract that if a, if a woman is pregnant, she needs to notify the administration with a letter. She says, I think Mrs. So-and-so, who is a, a heavyset woman, is pregnant and she needs to give us a letter. 
You want me to ask her if she's pregnant? <laughs> yeah. said, okay, if she isn't, you know, this is a bad situation. <laughs> so I go into her room and I say, well, uh, would you by chance happen to be pregnant? And she said, well, yes, I have. I said, oh, good. I said, well, you need to write a letter to the principal telling him that you're pregnant. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah. Uh, It is. Yeah, it was, a, it was a, it, potentially it was a bad question because if she had just added some pounds or something, you know, that would have been very embarrassing for both oh, of us. And it so, would have been. But uh, I had no choice, I guess, at that time but to ask the question. But uh, You know, you, you, you look at, and that's another thing. I mean, you know, we have laws that protect racist statements now, and we have laws that protect against religious attacks on religion, but we still attack people's weight. We yeah. Can, you know, um, fatter people or obese people. You know, how do you want to die? Another one is that almost every every young couple gets, and I feel bad for women more than I do for husbands here, where you can have children. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's not fair to them. You no. know, you don't know their financial situation. Well, the physical situation. Physical there could be a lot situation. of things happening. Yeah. Yeah. You and, know, they don't need that pressure. Yeah. And really, it's none of you, even if you're the in law, it's none of your business uh, whether or not the kids have kids or not. You're right. And, but and, but I, yeah, I know what you're saying there. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and another one that, that I changed the last few years when I taught, and I, I don't ask people that are graduating anymore, students are asked, What are you going to do when you graduate? Mm -hmm. Well, you can just see the pressure on their face. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, heck, they don't know what they're going to do well, no. that day, let yeah. alone yeah. five years from now or ten yeah. years from now. No, I always told kids there's no law that says when you turn 18, you have to have the rest of your life mapped out. Oh. You know, it's just, you know, don't worry about it. If you we need to go on a trip for a year or get a job and work someplace for a year or two years or go, go in the military for a few years to get straightened out uh, and get your mindset, why, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to start your your work life when you're 18 years old. And so uh, I've tried to be on the good side of that one. Yeah. But yeah, it does put a lot of pressure, especially if there's kind of like a family business, you know, like dad's a teacher, mom's a teacher, you know, here's another little teacher. Uh, or, uh, I mean, there's been tons and tons of stories written about the problems family have when uh, Junior doesn't want to carry on with the family business. Yeah. You know, what are they going to do? And, you know, it's been in our family for three generations, and you and your brothers, none of you want to farm or none of you want to run the store. Or what, you know, uh, what are we going to do? And so that would be hard to uh, face up to that, too, as a kid. It is. It is. We have to be careful when we ask, especially young people, those kind of questions, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Especially about their weight. Are you on a diet? Or yeah. Are you, yeah. You know, it, it is. There's there's so much out there that uh, can harm people. Mm -hmm. So it was. Uh, they wanted her to do a solo career. They didn't want the brother. And she said, "Well, the, the brother can be in my band and this sort of thing." And was really her partner. But the record people got on her that in her public appearances she looked heavy. And she turned into, you know, had a food addiction. Then at the end, it was anorexic and actually killed her yeah. because uh, they were after her about losing weight. And there was, you know, she just skin and bones. And, you know, her thing was she had just this most incredible, beautiful voice, but that wasn't enough for them. You know, for the people making money off of her, they wanted her to look different than she did. And uh, 
No, some people's bodies are meant to carry a little more weight, and and some people cannot be skinny like that. Even though, what was it the Southern Bells back in the early 1800s that wanted to have the thin little waist and would cinch themselves up right. with corsets and this sort of thing? Right. And you think, okay, didn't anybody ever think, you know, that's really stupid? But uh, I heard even someone had a rib removed. Did you ever hear that? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, I see that uh, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think, okay. Uh, the Chinese used to bind the feet of the little girls so they couldn't walk. They thought that was uh, that was some kind of a sex thing, I think. But it was just uh, who comes up with these things and who pay? You know, I just yeah. So this is the Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network. We were talking earlier on, Dale, about uh, the best soundtrack mm-hmm. um, from a movie. Yeah, and. Both you and I are from a, from an earlier generation. We, <laughs> yeah. our, our producer over there, um, he said, had no idea what we were talking he, about. He, he didn't. Yeah, uh, so. The uh, but but uh, Dale, what is your best movie soundtrack of all time? Well, the one I can think of that I was so impressed with is the the original Star Wars, and it was at nineteen seventy eight. I thought the music in that and the sound the the sound effects and uh if you remember the bar scene where they had all these different looking uh, you can call them people but creatures or whatever yeah. beings and the music that was being played by the little band that was in there and everything and that you know sticks with you and uh even though space is a vacuum and doesn't carry sound, you could hear the blasters going up in the middle of space <laughs> the rockers would make a noise and this sort of thing so you say well that can't be right but uh uh, it seemed to fit, and so, just off the top of my, that's what I—that's the one I remember as being very impressed by the sound, and so, so I picked the original Star Wars, the first Star Wars that came out. So that's a really good one. Notice that's 1978, Blake. That was 1978. Yeah, and we're a little, we're a little older, but mine. Comes well, we were from both them. older then than Blake is now, yeah, I think. Probably. I'm afraid. So. I'm afraid you. I, I was. I was only about. Uh, I was only about seven, 16, 17 at the time oh, okay. in 78. Oh, baby then. Okay. I was. I, um, but, you know, for sci-fi, I can remember going to uh, Star Wars mm-hmm. and seeing that movie. Yeah. What I chose was a, a uh, was born on Saturday Night Live. Um, Saturday Night Live had some incredible stars at that time. They had uh, Gilda Radner, and they had um, Bill Murray. They had Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. And night, night after night, or Saturday after Saturday, they, they, they would come out with skits. Um, was quite a singer. Um, I can remember him singing, oh, um, gosh. I'm trying to think of, think of the English singer that he he would do um but he you know he he would sing quite regularly and one night and they 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 would do um the bees um Aykroyd and Belushi sang a blues song and it was a hit it was a hit owned a bar in New York City that that would keep uh, musical instruments for people to jam with and blues musicians would come in and jam mm-hmm. there and they would have the after show party there and and um, he got Belushi one night they came out and uh, they dressed in their 
they're dressed in their famous fedora hats and the dark glasses and the dark suits and they they came out and sang a song and and the the band leader for Saturday Night Live talked them into giving themselves the name the Blues Brothers. Mm-hmm. Elwood and Jake. Yeah. Um, Aykroyd was Elwood and so so um, Aykroyd and another guy started to write a movie at the bar and they they wrote this movie and they decided that they were going to make this movie. The extras were incredible, huge numbers. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that yeah. they had they had the National Guard in Illinois. They had they had a crowd of five thousand people at a concert. They did. They had. They had Aretha. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, here here are some of the stars that they had on the show. They had Aretha Franklin. Yeah. Oh, and Carrie Fisher from Star Wars. Carrie too. Fisher. Yeah. Twiggy. Twiggy, oh yeah. <laughs> Twiggy was in that. Um, you have to explain Twiggy to Blake yeah. sometimes. <laughs> Cab Calloway was yeah. in that. That yeah. was his last. That was his last big starring role. Yeah. Um, Stevie Cooper, Lou Lou Marini, Alan Rubin, um, Eddie Floyd, Donald Duck Dunn, um, Willie Hall. I'm Johnny Lee Hooker. Those are all blues people. Yes, right? they yeah. are. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there was a big renaissance because of Belushi and Aykroyd. There was a big renaissance of the blues in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. You know, kids my age that wouldn't have known anything about the blues. That's true. Were exposed to the blues. Yeah. Because of that movie, uh, and because of Saturday Night Live, um, Tommy McDonald. Um, Mighty Mac, Paul Schaefer, the the yeah. guy that was on uh, the Tonight Show. The, or no, yeah. David Letterman. David yeah. Letterman, the band leader. Yeah. Um, guitar Matt Murphy. Okay. Um, Willie Hall. It, it, it was it was incredible, you know. And and the songs they had, Dale, were were just remarkable. Um, the flip flop fly. They they had um, think. She she caught the Katie theme from Rawhide. Yeah, Rawhide. I knew that one when they played that. So. Yeah, um, Sweet Home Chicago. Yeah, this, I love that song. Um, Aykroyd was from Chicago, and they were way over budget. This this was a movie, and this was the 1970s. They they were filming it. It cost 25 million dollars to film it. If you remember, in that in that movie. They had a they had a police car chase yeah. in a mall. Yeah, I always wonder how many cars they if there was ever a number oh. given out because it's unbelievable. It but is. that chase in the mall and then all the cars piled up later on and everything. So yeah. they they had um, shake your tail feather, hey bartender, <clears throat> messing with a kid. I can't turn you loose. I got everything I need almost. The old landmark, Minnie the Moocher, Cap oh, yeah. Galloway, saying Minnie that. the yeah. Moocher. Yeah. Who uh, was the little guy that played the Nazi? Oh. Henry? But he was on uh, Laugh-In. He would read little poems. Yes, he was. Yeah. 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 Um, Green Onions, Guilty, Riot in Cell Block Number 9. They, they had to have... <laughs> They had to have 500 guys at that concert. Mm-hmm. Shotgun Blues, B-Movie Boxcar Blues, Peter Gunn theme, and I Can't Turn You Loose. I mean, they, they just... 
tore it up. And like you say, with Aretha Franklin and John and Lee Hooker, and they they brought a lot of those guys back that were were more or less dead in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ex- exposed them to people that had never heard of. Them. Yeah. No, I would. That's your. Um, Sure, your soundtrack, and it, it was a great one. Yeah, yeah, and they must have sold an album from that. Yeah, yeah. that was a, re- a great big seller. Uh, but no, that was a, a fun show, and uh, you know, I've been in Chicago probably more than any other city because the Cubs were there, and when they had them, uh, the boys staying in that little apartment next to the L, and everything would shake <laughs> when the train oh, went yeah. by, <laughs> and they just sleep right through it. You think, oh man. Uh, and Carrie Fisher trying to blow them up with everything she could get her hands on, and so yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. It, it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, a movie that, uh, and they, they they had to cut it. Aykroyd had it written, and when the when Hollywood got it, they had to bring John Landis in, and John Landis had to butcher it because yeah. it was so long. You know, yeah. he, he just kept writing. Yeah, and. Like I said, it cost $25 million to make, and it grossed like $181 million. So yeah, that's a lot of money, and that's, you know, in today's dollars, that's probably a billion. You know? Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it, was, it was wonderful. Um, this is Steve Brown Arts Center Podcast Network, and I'm Jim Gillespie with Dale Reber and producer Blake Tempest. And we're at Cowork 591 Studios in beautiful downtown Jessup. It's the hub of industry as presently outside the golf course board is meeting and change, changing, I'm sure, to an 18-hole golf course now as we speak. So, uh, not that we're starting any rumors well, or anything. Well, you know, if we don't know anything that's true, we have to start making stuff up. And so... Uh, the uh, uh, Kathy Bucknell, her house is on the market. See, so that's going to be the the tenth hole right there. So, is it really on the market? Huh? Is it really on the market? No. Oh, I just, okay. Well, you're going to expand the golf course. You got to go some way, you know. Um, I I gave Dale an article to take home and read tonight. It's by Mel- Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell's pretty big in in the world right now. If mm-hmm. you uh, he wrote for. He, he was a staff writer for New York, for the New York Times, and or the New Yorker, New Yorker magazine. Yeah. yeah, New Yorker magazine, and he's he's the guy that came up with the uh, ten thousand hour rule, where you could be a at anything you wanted to if you spent ten thousand hours at it oh. in your life. That someone would pay you for doing it if. Well, like, yeah. If you want, if you wanted to be a professional golfer, yeah, yeah. and you spend yeah. ten thousand hours at, you. yeah, and it's since been debunked, yeah. But, but he be, he believed that, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so, but I, I wanted to talk about that article that uh, that Dale wrote because this uh, sort of uh, that I gave Dale yeah. to read um, because th- this sort of has to do with something that the Steve Brown Art Center is working on. That this is an article by Malcolm Gladwell in the New Yorker back, I believe it's 2013, and it's called uh, "How David Beats Goliath." And and this happens more often than not. Um, if if you look, uh, when Vivek Randavi. Not, not the man running for president. This is Vivek Randavi decided to coach his daughter Angelie's basketball team. He settled on two principles. The first was 
that he would never raise his voice. This was National Junior Basketball, the Little League of Basketball. The team was made up of mostly 12-year-olds, and 12-year-olds he knew from experience did not respond well to shouting. He would conduct business on the basketball court, he decided, the same way he would conduct business at a software firm. He would speak calmly and softly and convince the girls of the wisdom of his approach with appeals to reason and common sense. The second principle was more important. Randavie was puzzled by the way Americans played basketball. He was from Mumbai in India and he grew up with cricket and soccer. He would never forget the first time he saw a basketball game. He thought it was mindless. Team A would score and then immediately retreat to its own end of the court. Team B would inbound the ball and dribble it to Team A's end where Team A was patiently riding. Then the process would a basketball court was 94 feet long, but most of the time a team defended only about 24 feet of that, conceding the other 70 feet. Occasionally, teams would play a full-court press. That is, they would contest their opponent's attempt to advance the ball up the court, but they would do it only for a few minutes at a time. It was as if there were a kind of conspiracy in the basketball world about the way <laughs> the game ought to be played. Yeah. And Randaviv thought it was a, that the conspiracy had the effect of widening the gap between good teams and weak teams. Good teams, after all, had players who were tall and could dribble and shoot well. They could crisply execute the carefully prepared plays in their opponent's end. Why, then, did any weak teams play in a way that made it easy for good teams to do the very things that made them so good? Yeah. Well, Randaviv looked at his girls. Morgan and Julia were serious basketball players, but Nikki, Angela, Danny, Holly, Anakin and his own daughter, Angelie, had never played the game before. You know, we've all been through that as coaches where you get a group of young ladies or young men that have never played the game before. Yeah, They couldn't shoot. They weren't particularly adept at dribbling. They were not the sort who played pickup games at the playground every evening. Most of them were, as Randaviv said, little blonde girls from Menlo Park and Redwood City the heart of Silicon Valley. You know, a bunch of, a bunch of computer geeks' children yeah. is what it was. Those were the daughters of computer programmers and people with graduate degrees. They worked on science projects and read books and went on ski vacations with their parents and dreamed about growing up to be a marine biologist. Randaviv knew that if you played the conventional way, if they let their opponents dribble the ball up the court without opposition, they would almost certainly lose to the girls for whom basketball was a passion. Randaviv came to America as a 17-year-old with, with $50 in his. He was not one to accept losing easily. His second principle then was that his team would play a real full-court press every game all the time. The team ended up at the national championship. It was really <laughs> random, and Angelie Randaviv said, I mean, my father had never played basketball before. Yeah, that's amazing. This team plays against a really good team, and they pressed them. Well, it was a tournament where you had to bring your own official, and this team that they were playing's official 
started calling fouls as soon as the game started. Mm-hmm. And even with that, they, they stayed in the game. But they, by the end, they had to back off and sit in a half-court game. It was uh, saddening for them to see a man would cheat 12-year-old girls. Yeah. You know, because they didn't agree with the style that they played. Gladwell Gladwell did a nice job of talking about it, and the article talks about multiple times where the underdogs defeat people that are far better or more prepared for the uh, event. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Oh, who was the great uh, Chinese warrior? Was it... uh, not Lao Tzu, but uh, who wrote the the Art of War? Yes, yeah, I trying to. I knew yeah. that's who you meant, but I can't pick out the yeah. name. But uh. you know, he 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 did a lot of the same things. He would break down in, into small groups and, mm-hmm. and hit and run like that. Yeah, yeah. But the reason I tell you this story is the Steve Brown Arts Center is pursuing a doing a docu series about a team that runs the Grinnell system. And we're presently talking with a girls team in Bensonville, Illinois. Bensonville, Dale, if you're not familiar, is is the suburb that O'Hare Airport is in. And, okay, I would not have known that. Yeah, so. And um, O'Hare is slowly taking this oh, yeah, I'm, suburb. Yeah. As the as the airport grows larger yeah. and larger yeah. and larger, yeah. And anyhow, the, there's a there's a high school there called Fenton, where the girls run the Grinnell system, where they they press all over the the floor. They are they want to shoot half their shots are three pointers. They want to shoot 25 more times than the opponents. They want to rebound 35% of their misses. They uh, want to turn the opponent over 32 times. And I, I watched I watched one of their games here this week, and they are they are um, not overly talented, and I'm not attacking them because they play some incredible teams. They are the sec the second smallest school in their conference okay. in that in that Chicago conference they um they play fast they they press and they are a, they're a bunch of of young ladies that can run forever and they are those little girls that we talked about earlier from Malcolm Gladwell's story but it, anyhow we're we're talking to them and we're also talking to um, Grinnell College about if, if it doesn't work out out in uh, Bensonville, we may do the Grinnell men. I talked to uh, Dave Arsenal, um, the men's coach there, and he was very excited that uh, about doing a docu series about uh, about his team, and he's got he's got some really good young players right now that are only going to get better. They're 10 and 3 right now. They lost Saturday at Lawrence and they play Friday at noon against Andrews. And uh I plan on going down to that and talking to Dave some more. 
um, about it. At one time, there were about 100 teams in our country running the Grinnell system, and it's down to less than less than 10 teams running oh, is that the right? system okay. right now in, in, uh, in our country. And that's middle school through, through men's college. Yeah. So when Virgil was at Dunkin', he ran... He ran the Grinnell it, system. Yeah, that's what yeah. I thought, yeah. So a lot of kids get to play in that system. Yeah, well, yeah, I, they run them in and out. So, and, and I talked to Dave yesterday on the phone, and he said, "You know, Jim, I, I want to play. I got twenty guys. I got twenty guys on my team, and I'm playing all twenty of them." Oh wow! Okay, he's playing. He's playing twenty players. Yeah, um, and he is. He is. Um, it's um, Dave, those of you not familiar, Dave. Dave coached in the NBA G League for a couple of years. tried to, tried to take the Grinnell system to the Sacramento's G League team out out in Denver, right? out in Colorado in that area. No, it was excuse me, it was Reno. He uh, eventually went back. He um, and he had to change the system because in the, in uh, the G League they try to save money, and usually they have less than less than twelve players that are healthy or or capable of playing mm-hmm. because they're they're pulling people up like Gar Garza that plays for Des Moines also plays for the Timberwolves up in Minneapolis mm-hmm. yeah. when they need him and oh who was the man that played for you and I yeah Green Gre- yeah is it Green yeah yeah um, plays for the Bucks and also plays for their G League mm-hmm. team yeah. So you're constantly losing players, and and it was real hard to run the system with yeah. just ten guys. I remember someone asked Al McGuire once; he was the coach at Marquette that won the national championship, about how he keeps his squad tied in with everything. And he said, "Well, he said, what you need is seven guys who can really play, and eight guys who are just happy to be there, because yeah. that's the system he ran. It's seven guys could play the whole game, and." Uh, with the Grinnell system, that would not work. You, everybody's got to play, so or almost everybody. You know, and, and like you know, Dave's Dave's dad, David Arsenal, um, was head coach of Grinnell before before Dave was, and and he always said this: it's not a clubhouse. You know, everybody doesn't play the same amount. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. You know, maybe nineteen and twenty play three minutes in a game mm-hmm. or two minutes in a game. Maybe twelve through or thirteen through seventeen play six or seven minutes in a game. Mm-hmm. You know, it is. It's not a clubhouse. Yeah. But uh, I, I always wanted to, as head coach, wanted wanted to suit twenty kids and play twenty kids at the varsity <laughs> level. Yeah. That would be neat. Anyhow, that we are we are uh, trying to put the money together and trying to uh, find a team. And trying to find a documentarian um, that that will do it. I wish it. I wish it took it took as much time as doing a podcast. Yeah. But it, <laughs> it doesn't. It, it takes months and months and months. Um, it's it's been a year long process, and I'm not convinced we're any any closer, Dale. Yeah. Well, but uh, at least we're talking to people. Well, sure. So, um, this is Steve Brown Art Center Podcast Network. Um, some events coming up um, include uh, this Friday at Allerton Brewery. Dave Harms, the photographer, is showing his work on February 4th. There's an art show 
at the Jessup Firehouse from 8.30 to 10.30 along with the pancake breakfast. There is uh, Nick Thomas um, from Los Angeles is showing his work. Buyer from Independence, a woodwork man, is showing his work. And John Decker is showing his work. At uh, That's February 4th from 8.30 to 10.30 at uh, the Jessup Firehouse. To conclude our February experience, Kenny Mealhow is showing his artwork at Winding Creek Meadow from 2 until 4 on February 17th. So those are upcoming events in the C. Brown Arts Center. I won't go through the rest of the the, the rest of the uh, um, events for the year, but uh, we're excited about those. Dale, before we close out tonight, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I don't think so. I just say the compliment the city. They did a nice job with the streets again, and uh, we got a good bunch of workers there. And so I could tell you, uh, went to Dale Lorenz's funeral. Something you said earlier reminded right. me of that. And I met him when my son was five. Summer after kindergarten, they played t-ball. And so I was assigned, uh, you know, I just signed up. And Dale Lorenz was assigned to coach Wispy, you know, so the two of us were coaching. So the first day, we got the kids in a kind of a line, and they're getting up to the plate. And we're showing them how to stand when they bat, you know, because some would stand on the plate and some would stand, you know, looking the wrong way and have the bat wrong. So Dale Lorenz is is working that. And so the little boy would go up there and he would take him by the shoulders and he would move him, you know, now you stand and say, put your feet like this and move his feet for him and this sort of thing. So he did eight or nine kids like that. And then this other kid, this kid gets into the box and he he, he grabs him like, here, turn like this, you know, and put your feet like this. And he grabs him and I said, whoa, you know, what's, well, it was his own kid, you know. So he was so nice and gentle with all these little kids. But when his own kid got up there, he said, you know, he had no more time. <laughs> he had enough. You ought to know how to do this. And so that's what I remembered about him at the funeral. I thought it was so, so very interesting. What a nice man. And uh, he served three different tours in Vietnam with the Navy. And uh, I think a lot of his health problems over the years were the result of his service. And so, yeah. but uh, so uh, going to miss him. And uh, 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 Seth and Matt, you probably had those right. in school, had the boys right. in school. So uh, nice kids. So. Yep. Okay, that's all I got. So. All right, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, if you'd like to donate to the Steve Brown Arts Center, um, as I said, email me at uh, the gym at stevebrownartscenter.org or call 319-290-0241, and I'll tell you how to do that. I'm uh, Jim Gillespie. Thanks to co-host Dale Reber, and thanks to our producer, He's been very quiet tonight, hasn't he? So. He's, a, he's a shy person. Yeah. And we are, we are uh, lucky to be here. Make sure you tell your friends. Um, click, click like and follow <laughs> us. Yeah. And, or, and do they have and a box like, oh, they're okay? You know, it's what I don't know, but yeah. then I'm follow us and follow us again, yeah. if you would. Um, we are, we are uh, fortunate to know. Um, that it, that every day is uh, about little victories. Yeah.